But I started the story, I started telling kids that my mom was eaten by a lion. <laughs> when I was 14 years old in juvenile hall, I remember being in there, they call it the box in there, and accepting this is where you're gonna die. You're gonna die in one of these boxes. I've been to prison, you know, I've done pull-ups for years, like, you know, I'm strong. I remember having the thought, like, maybe it's like, it's like a wall. I'll run away from the police and jump over walls. Like, I got this. I can do this. I can do this. I'm built for this shit. You can change this around. You can stop doing drugs, Chris. She told me, there's something amazing in life waiting for you if you're willing to work for it. Hello and welcome to Unstoppable. I'm your host, Kerwin Ray, and today, oh my gosh, this is an epic one. I'm gonna say, I'd normally say grab a cup of tea, sit down and relax, and we'll say grab a cup of tea and maybe a meal. This is an incredible one. Today we're talking to Chris Tattered Strength Lura, three times world calisthenics champion. When you look at this guy, he looks like a muscle-bound criminal that you do not want to meet in the dark alley, but this man has a heart of gold. This is an epic conversation. We go everywhere and anywhere. Apart from a cup of tea and a little bit of food, if there's something else I'd suggest you grab, it's a box of tissues, because this one had me in tears. This is Tattered Strength, Chris Lura. Listen up. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it is a great honor and a pleasure to welcome to Unstoppable, the unstoppable man himself, Chris Tattered Strength Lura. Thanks for coming in, bro. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Now, uh, before I actually kick this off, uh, what we normally do is we normally get people to explain a little bit about who they are. Okay. Uh, now, your story is a big one, but, but in a nutshell, who, who's Chris Lura? Tattered so, Strength. I am uh, Chris Lura. I'm better known as Tattered Strength. Tattered Strength came... Uh, of a title after I started calisthenics. And um, who I was in the beginning of my life is completely different than who I am today. And I grew up wrapped up in drugs, gangs, crime, and spending a lot of time behind bars. Mm. That was the beginning half of my life, pretty much. And now the, the top end, three-time world calisthenics battle of the bars champion. Yes. What an incredible turnaround. And, and uh, you know, my, my trainer as well in L.A. <laughs> yes, yes, I should. And i got to say, like, I, you're, I love training with you. You're like, your, your, your discipline, your attention to detail, um, your respect for Cali as a, as, a, as a pure sport, the gymnastics aspect of it. Yeah, it's like, it's top of the game, mate. It really is. But um, that's what most people see. They see this guy with, you know, all these lumps and muscles and tattoos who can spin around the bars and look like he defies gravity. But where did it all begin? Like, where were you born, man? I was born in Bakersfield, California. Yeah. Uh, both my biological parents were heavy drug addicts, very in and out of the system, multiple arrests, doing time. And um, child services and the system came into my life from what I was told through my story from uh, family members and things that obviously I was born. And, but they came into my life as soon as I was born. From what I was told that my biological mother was using drugs and under the influence of drugs during the pregnancy and during my birth. Wow. So I tested positive for drugs of some sort, which brought 
child services into my life right. the moment I came into the world. Right, wow. And so you were immediately taken away from your biological mom? I wasn't taken away. Right. I was told that uh, that's when they were involved in my life, but okay. the, the system, police, parole, all these things were already heavily involved in my mother's life. Yeah. Um, my biological mother passed away when I was about one and a half. Right. And then at that point... Was that a drug-related death as well? Yes. Yeah. Yes. She overdosed. There was... I touch on it in my book. I wrote a book about my life and everything, but there's kind of shadiness around my mother's death. Right. My uncle was there, and um, her husband at the time, my father, was there. And I know that she died of an overdose. But for some reason, her body was found at the bottom of a, a cliff or a steep hill, like a large embankment or something. So there's been um, speculation of, was she pushed? Was she taken there? Were, were they just hanging out doing drugs and then she overdosed and fell down? Uh, I never really understood or knew the exact details. I know that nobody else was arrested or questioned about any foul play. So what happened to you? Um, after that, my father put me up for adoption. At the age of one and a half? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, as soon as uh, my mom was out of this picture, yeah. he was so wrapped up in his ad addiction and his life of crime or whatever he was involved in that he wasn't trying to take on being a father at that time. Yeah. And... Um, it hurts, but I honestly have to respect it, I guess, because I went into a foster home, and at that time, my great aunt from my mom's side found out that I was in a foster home, and she adopted me and became my mother. Yeah, right. And um, gave me life. Yeah, right. She didn't give birth to me, but she gave me life. Yeah, right. What do you mean by that? In the first half of my life, it, I was given so much love, I was given so much opportunity that I didn't really focus so much on losing my my biological parents yeah. I didn't I, I was so young at the time that it wasn't something that I was focused on losing yeah. it was, I didn't know something was there and then it wasn't you were just focusing on the love that you're being given yeah and she really she really built a strong foundation around you at that stage of your life didn't she oh she she was the most amazing, strong woman that built my foundation, my entire family's yeah. foundation. She was, she was amazing. The matriarch. And um, I do remember growing up that when I was going to school and getting picked up by her every day, and like my, I went to a Catholic school, very small, and um, I started getting questions like, why does your grandma pick you up all the time? Like, why, where's, where's your mom? And um, I'm not sure why, but I started the story. I started telling kids that my mom was eaten by a lion. <laughs> <laughs> Good it, story. It, it, <laughs> and, it, and it usually stopped the conversation. Yeah, right. The kids didn't really know how to, like, react. And um, it was a cool thing, I guess. But um, the story got to par kids' parents. Yeah. And then it got to the school, back to the school. And then it um, became a thing. 
I remember it becoming a thing that I was so young that I didn't understand it fully, why I was in trouble mm. or why I was being, why now I was a liar mm. and why I was uh, causing problems and, 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 I, and, I, and I can't do this. I can't tell stories. You can't tell stories. You can't lie like that. Um, and it started to snowball from there. I remember that was like the first element that me recognizing that I was different or something was different about me than the rest of my classmates because my mom was much older or the woman that gave birth to me was no longer here. Mm. Yeah. A lot going on. And so at what point, I'm going to assume this started to culminate in um, behaviors that were well, hang on, if, if I've been labeled this way, if I've been treated this way, well, then maybe I'll just behave this way. Yeah. Is that kind of what happened? It, it, it did. And um, the, that early on, I, it was a lot of confusion, right. just uh, pain mm. and confused about the mm. pain. Um, but as I got a little older, it, everyone realized that I was so hyperactive. There was like no... No sitting me button. down. Yeah, there was no off button ever. <laughs> yeah. It was just 100, 100 miles an hour till I passed out. Yeah. And um, so my mom ended up taking me to the doctor, and I was diagnosed with ADHD and given Ritalin at seven. Wow. Holy shit. Yes, yeah, second grade. Yeah. And... Um, it just went up. I, I don't remember too much about when I first started taking the medication. I do remember that it was three times a day. I remember that it was, I had to take it when I woke up. I had to take it once at school. And I had to take it as soon as I got home from school. And that was a very damaging thing that happened in my life. Mm. Um, for many reasons, but one thing is that at school, I became different. I became the medicated kid. Even at such a young age, um, I couldn't remember half, maybe half of the reason why I didn't want to remember. I wasn't excited about taking pills. I didn't, I didn't analyze it yeah. to the point where like, oh, I don't want to be on medication yeah. or anything like that. It's just so much more things I was interested in than take, <coughs> taking a pill. So at school, I was supposed to take my medicine during lunch and um, tell a small child uh, to report to somewhere during the day, especially during his playtime, it didn't happen all the time. Mm. Very, very often I would forget. So after lunch, the nurse would call the, my teacher and ask them to send me to the nurse's office. Yeah, right. And um, I don't believe that it was intentional or cruel in any way, I believe that the teachers were just doing their job and maybe not putting in the thought of what information they were putting out to the public, to the whole classroom. 
uh, because a lot of times it started to become like, oh, Chris, you forgot to take your medicine. Um, you need to go down to the nurse. So that happened a lot. I would forget a lot, and it happened a lot. And kids are cruel. You know, kids pick up information. So um, I think it, it started probably innocently, but I remember kids telling me, like, oh, did you take your pills? That was a very early element that I didn't like. Mm. It affected me a lot. It was hard to be labeled that way. And then growing into school more, um, getting a little older, it's more and more schoolwork, less coloring. (laughs) Um, And it was (laughs) highlighted that I have dyslexia. And um, it was weird at first to understand or be my eyes get tired and I didn't realize it would like my eyes are getting tired as a little kid it's just the words would move around on the page mm. and um, I had a very hard time reading uh, f- just reading in itself but publicly reading in, in class being called upon to read a sentence or a chapter or, or something or like a paragraph I was scared, and I stuttered, and I tried to avoid it at all costs. And that added to the element of being picked on. And I was in a very small Catholic school, so we all, everybody that went to the school knew each other. There was no element of, like, who's that kid? Yep. You know? These small elements of being under, understood that I'm the kid on, on medication and that um, I have a hard time reading. And um, so then I was put in a resource class. We were different. Mm. We were challenged. We were whatever and it might have been. just compounded the situation. Compounded the situation in all elements. <clears throat> so I'm seeing here a, a pattern of escalation of attention of the wrong type, whereby it was, yeah, essentially you, you're picked on to the point of almost no return. Because at some point something's got to break, right? Exactly. And that's the thing that, like, my, being picked on didn't necessarily reach a point of physical. Like, it, like it, it, it just was nagging at me that these little comments and these little jokes and these, uh, me understanding that I was different, feeling uncomfortable. You got arrested at the first time at the age of 11. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to assume all of this escalated to a point where you started to act out. <laughs> What, what, when did this start to happen? What, what, what I, I was getting picked on at school, and I just lashed out. I, I, I couldn't take it. My energy was built up, and I got in a fight. Kid was picking on me, and I lashed out physically. And that kid stopped, which reinsured the wrong thing in me. Yeah, wow. Like, I can become violent. People will stop picking. And I direct the way things go. Mm. And that element took off. As soon as I understood it, I ran with it. Everybody that would come to me in a, in a wrong way or something, I started getting more angry. I'd get more loud. 
I had the energy already. My energy was there. But now it was just putting anger on it. And so then as I started to pick up like, oh, if I act this way, if I talk this way, if I'm the, the tough guy, if I'm the, everybody kind of falls into place or, or I can manage the situation. So then I wanted more of that. So outside of school, I started hanging out with older kids and kids that I felt were, that I couldn't push around. Mm. So I wanted to be like them. And then they started to show me things like tagging. I don't know what of the element of tagging was so captivating to me. Like, I have dyslexia, I have learning disability for thinking, like, I want to go right on everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, what you know? But the graph community, the tagging graph community, it's, it's a community. Oh, it's, it's, it's very, a family. And yes. it's, it's, it's pockets of families. They, it's gangs, right? It is. Yeah. It is very much a gang element here in Los Angeles. And tagging crews um, vary from very strong artistic ability to territorial gang-infested mindset. Mm. So um, there was an element of it that I was doing something, I was creating something, I was learning a cool thing. Like I do remember when I started tagging. Oh, Got to start coloring in again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so much better than uh, you know writing an essay or trying to yeah. sound out a word. <laughs> um, but... I'm not sure why I ran with tagging so much. I think that it was very much more of the element of wrongdoing. Like I'm not supposed to fight and I'm not supposed to punch kids and push kids down. But I know that when I did that, I got what I, what I wanted. You got respect. I got respect. And they stopped and they shut up. And that element of me hanging out with older kids and feeling that fear that I'm like, oh, if this kid tells me to do something or if this kid wants to fight, I'm scared. I want to be that kid. Mm. I want to be the kid that everybody fears because at school, my little tiny little school, I'm kind of that kid. I'm wild and unpredictable. But when I'm outside in the outside world, I'm still a small fish and scared. And you want to become a bigger fish? I want more respect. I want to feel that I can stop somebody from being more powerful than me and overpowering me in any element. And so, yeah, like when I started doing... I remember stealing some alcohol from, um, from my parents in the garage. I, got, I arrested the first time when I was about 11, so this was probably about 10 years old. Yep. At what point did drugs come on the scene? Um, after, after drinking a little bit and hanging out with older kids, I started to smoke weed. Okay. I started to, uh, a good friend of mine, his parents smoked weed. And um, I remember him telling me that he had gotten some weed from his parents. And I re remember I was with another kid. Um, 
And the kid that I was with was like, whoa, like, you know, kind of panicking out, getting a little nervous or about the mention of marijuana. And I think it was that element that excited me more about the weed. Yeah, right. Uh, I remember being, men- like, the weed was mentioned, and I was kind of like, okay, like, and then seeing the nervousness and everything with the with the, my friend that I was skateboarding with, he was like, whoa, like, this kid's talking about weed. He's much older, and I think that I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll try it. Like, I'm cool with it. Let's, let's do it, you know? What age was this? This was about 11. Okay. Yeah. Like eleven. People getting arrested. Yes, and when I got when I got arrested, I um, was riding on a on a park bench, um, and a girl that I went to school with saw me do it, and um, yelled out. I remember riding on the bench and hearing someone yell something, and I looked back and I saw this girl that I went to school with, and I was like, oh. And then her dad coming down the driveway. And then I was like, uh-oh. And I skateboarded off. And they knew who I was. So they had called the cops and said that I had rode on the bench. And the police showed up at my mother's house later that night. And um, I wasn't arrested, booked in, had a court date, and... My parents didn't have to pay the fine or anything that time. I remember they came to my house. I was watching cops. (laughs) Bad boys, bad boys. (laughs) And I do remember that the cop was like, you watching cops, man? What are you doing? Like, you know, making a joke about it and everything. And, And I remember being so scared, so scared that I was... I don't know what's going to happen to me now. You know, I don't know. And, um, and they just gave you a talking to or they put you in the car? Or? They, they, they put me in the car. Yeah. They, yeah. they just gave me like a talking yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. But they, they put me in the car. Yeah. They, uh, you know, gave me a little bit of a ride, you know. And, uh, you know, so. Try to give you the fright of your life. Yeah, they did. Yeah. They, they scared me. <laughs> they got me, you know. Um, but then I went back home. And I think that that element... Well, I can see that glint in your eye. Like, it sounds to me like that was like waving a red flag at a bull. I was like, all right, this is game on. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I went back home. And I was going to school the next day, and I was like, I'm good. And so it just, it just continued on. And I didn't want to lose that element of... I'm the tough guy. Mm. And then you I kind of use that as a as a as a badge of honor now. Like, you know, I I've, I've I've been rolled by the police, like Yeah. Yeah. And uh um, It sounds like at this point you're 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 on the path, you're heading down the wrong direction, but I still get a sense like you're teetering. Was there a moment around this time or that's coming in the future where things just went into overdrive? It's like, like all right, now we're now we're really kicking into this. 7th grade, I would say is the turning point of intensity, like how it really turned up. I was already getting, started getting into a lot of trouble. I was like getting more trouble with the law. I was getting picked up for tagging and stuff. 
But at this point, I was smoking weed every day, drinking, stealing alcohol from everywhere I could. If it was my parents. And how old are you? Uh, this was sixth grade, so I was about 12, yeah, 30, yeah okay. about 12 years old. Um, so everything started to pick up more momentum. I was drinking every day, started uh, stealing from the stores, like doing beer runs, I guess, which is what we call them here in Los Angeles. Um, and th- th- that was a very big element to my crime life. Uh, going into eighth grade... My mom got me into a private, or it was a public school, but it was, it was in Rancho Palos Verdes, which is a, a very rich part of Los Angeles. And you have to live in that school district. Oh, you, right. you have to live in that area. And my brother did. So we used my brother's address to get me into the school. Going to this school, I, um, I loved it. Because it was a rich school, and I could sell drugs. <laughs> I could sell them the weed that they were looking for. Yeah, right. And so it was awesome to me. Mm. So when I got kicked out of that school, I went to the public school in San Pedro, which turned everything up. I was introduced to gangs. I had my tagging friends that were my age, that their older brothers, they were all gang members. And that's where the real power was. And as I started going to juvenile hall, I went to juvenile hall for getting arrested for tagging. And I remember the element of going to juvenile hall for the first time, I was scared out of my mind. But after the initial fear, I understood how to adapt. And that this was just school, but I just don't go home at the end. Mm. At what age did you first go to juvie? Uh, I was 13. Yeah. Eight, uh, so, no, no, no. I was, um, I remember going to juvenile hall for a small little period, like not actually, you know, going in and then being, uh, going to court and then being released back to my parents' custody at court, not necessarily being sentenced to a period of time in the juvenile hall. And my mom sent me to Utah at that point. She didn't want me to continue doing drug or getting, doing Is this jail when time. You were kidnapped? Yes, 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 which is probably another element of trauma that I carry because that was the scariest thing. Oh, dude, my mom very much knew that if she came to me and said, we're sending you to Utah to a boarding school, I would have ran away. So she hired some people to snatch me up in the middle of the night, and they didn't say not a word to me until I was locked in the plane. They came and picked me up in my house in the middle of the night, both my parents were gone. Put me in the car. Handcuffed you. Right? Handcuffed, handcuffed yeah. me. Yeah. Put me in the car. Drove me all the way to LAX. I've never been in a plane in my life. And, then, and for everyone listening, at this point, you think you've been abducted. Yes. Very, <laughs> very much I thought that I was being abducted. Yeah. I, I thought that I was. Because they, they snatch you. They cuff you. You know, he manhandled I you a little scream, bit. Yeah, oh yeah. 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 And you're and like, what's going on? And it's, and it's just nothing. Nothing. Yeah. I screamed for my parents. Yeah. And they said, shut up, they're not here. And that was it. That was the only information I was given. And I, I honestly thought I was going to China to like make Nikes for the rest of my life or something. <laughs> I didn't, I had no, I, I watched 2020 with my mom. <laughs> you know? I, I know how this goes. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm hip. And then they're getting you to I'm LAX and you're thinking to yourself, Okay, one, there's no way they can kidnap me and take me on a plane. No, there's Surely no. Surely security will, will intervene. I was handcuffed. Yeah. 
And they wave me right through. And I, I don't remember an element of them having a badge yeah. or like some type of identification card or something to yeah. say that what they were doing. But that's what happened. And they just walked us right on through. And we met up with two other guys. Then they had a kid. And this kid was like crying and all this. And I was like, dude, this is a, a ring. This is a huge thing. <laughs> like this is, yeah. I'm like, oh man. And... Um, I remember the kid saying like, oh, I need to go to the bathroom. And I was like, oh, I need to go to the bathroom too. I need to go to the bathroom too. I'm like, this kid maybe got like a, an escape plan. An escape plan. We're going to do this, you know? And one guy was like, I'll take him to the bathroom. And as soon as he was like, okay, like, I'll take him to the bathroom, the kid just broke. He just ran into the airport like, boom. And I was like, I, before I could do anything, the other guy had my hood, the hood of my sweater. So don't don't do anything. I'm not doing nothing. You know, I was handcuffed. I'm not doing nothing. So then next like couple minutes, not even a couple minutes, they bring the kid back. And I don't know what kind of element or what procedures this company or who what the company was or what what they're allowed to do, but they're bring they carried the kid back by his head. It was the weirdest thing I ever seen. I never seen anybody do this. The guy had like this. And his forearm was across the kid's forehead. And he had him like kind of leaned up against his back. So the kid was like, Durr! and they came back and sat, sat us down at the gate. I now know that I'm going to Salt Lake City, Utah, because it says on the gate. And they don't say anything else. And then until I get on the plane and they board the entire plane, the, board, the plane is locked. Then the guy turns to me and says, so I, so I guess you probably wanted to know what's going on. <laughs> you think? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, man. And he's like, your mom and dad hired us to take you to a school in Utah where you're going to learn to be a better young man. And I was like, oh, my God, dude, you could have freaking told me this, dude. You could have started with that. Jeez, <laughs> man. Like, what, you know, and he's like, look, we've been doing this for years and we've understood that this is the better way to do it. As soon as we tell the kid that you're going somewhere, they start crying, I'll be a good kid, I promise, mommy, mommy. This is just eliminates all of that. So I was like, all right. So then I ended up going to Utah, and I was there for about six months. Um, I, didn't, I didn't graduate the program. The program was uh, very much like jail when you first get there. It was... Um, Locked, everything was locked, escorted everywhere. And um, then my dad's insurance ran out. So I moved up in the program, but I didn't graduate the program and be sent home on this certificate graduation. Like my dad's insurance ran out. And so they sent me home, mm. which I loved. It was awesome. But then I just went right back to what I was doing as soon as I got back. And when did shit really start to go in pear shape? Like, when did you really start? When I got back from Utah. Right. When I got back from Utah, I had the element of being locked up, and I've been sent over, you know, I've been sent to a different state, and, you know, like, got into a lot of fights over there with older kids. And I remember I got beat up really bad by a kid from Anchorage, uh, Alaska. I lost this fight. I got beat up. But a couple days later, I was okay. And that just gave me the element of, I'll, 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 be, I'll survive. Like, I, I was more willing to fight. More. Because I knew I would heal. 
so when I got back from Utah, it was very much the element of like, I'm a badass. Because I've done time, like time, months, you know? <laughs> and um, so I just went right back to what I was doing with even more. Gusto. Yep. And then I went to Juvenile Hall and started doing time in Juvenile Hall, like time, time. And that's when I was even highlighted how where gangs, gangs run things. Like I remember, yep, going to jail, getting hit up, like, where you from? Told my little tagging crew, like, what the hell, what the heck is that? My crew. Oh, dude, like, this is, this is whoop-de-whoop street. This is whoop-de-whoop neighborhood. Like, these are powerful gangs that were started in the 60s and the 70s. They have thousands of members. They have guns. They have murder cases on their, like, you know? I was like, dang, dude, this is, that's where the power is. So then getting out and understanding that element and then seeing my friends as older brothers that were already involved, like, that's where I'm going. That's what I want. That's what I'm going to become. And that's what I did. I became a gang member, and I was introduced to, I was first introduced to crack cocaine was my first very hard drug. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that it was just cocaine. I didn't have a huge drug knowledge, still very young, and um, it was being smoked. So if I would have known anything that regular cocaine cannot be smoked, crack cocaine is smoked. So a friend of mine uh, that was much older was smoking crack when I went to his house. He asked me if I wanted to try it, and I was scared. There was, a lot, there was other people there. Didn't want to, I didn't want to ask questions too much because I didn't want to seem like I didn't know what was going on. So I just agreed, yeah. Took a, a blast for what, from what they call it. And it changed my life. It gave me an element of, I need this. And Did I you would, get a sense for the first time when you tried it that you, it was the first time you actually went, wow, I kind of feel normal? What, or is it, what, was your, what, was your, what was that, I need this? Was it the power? Was it the, because ADHD. It was, the, it was the numb. Yeah, it, right. was the, it was the numb. And, and honestly, it was um, the power of crack cocaine is, in, and being hit with that, like I remember taking it and, and Holding it, and my friend was like really trying to get me to feel it, I guess, you know, because he was like, hold it. And he was like, do push ups. And I'm like a little kid, and I just took a hit of crack, and I'm doing, doing push ups. And then he's like, blow it out. And I, when I, as soon as I blew it out, it's like a freight train hit me. I didn't feel any change of anything until I exhaled. And it was just like a, <clears throat> I was like, whoa. And I was literally just like, Can I have some more? And he was like, calm down. But I just felt like every thought, worry, pain, anything was gone. Nothing, I couldn't think of anything but the intensity of the high. And so that was, um, it was about two, three weeks of a crack binge that it opened my element of, 
I robbed everything. I was already stealing from my parents and I was already stealing. And you just turned up the dial. Yeah. This was, as much as I was like, oh, I'm going to steal this because I, I want some money in my pocket. Or I'm going to steal this because I want a beer or something. This was like, I'm stealing everything because I need this. It was driven. It was crime and theft with a purpose that was just, had so much momentum. And that's where I was just like, doing anything. And in that time, I was introduced to meth. I went to a friend's house and his sister was telling me that she was waiting for some drugs to be dropped off. And I assumed that it was crack. And um, my neighborhood that I became a part of, the street gang that I became a part of, was very well known for crack sales. There's different gangs that run heroin and different things. And um, the gang that I was involved with uh, was very big in crack sales. And so when she said that, that she had drugs going to be dropped off, I assumed that it was crack. So I sat there, I was all excited, like, yeah, I'm going to help you break it down. We're going to do it, we'll pack it up, whatever. I'm going to get some, I want to smoke some crack because I need some, right? And I was like coming down and I was coming like jonesing, you know? And when, when it came and we went in the room, and she turned around to the dresser. She had her back to me. She was doing this and doing some stuff. And then she turned back around and she had a CD case. And there was like four lines of this, not powder, but glass, like little chunks of shards. And I was like, what the hell is that? She's like, it's glass. And I was like, what the hell is that? She's like, it's meth, like speed, meth. I was like, oh, I don't, I don't fuck around. Like, I don't, I don't do that. And she was like, what? Like, all right, whatever. Like, you can have one if you want, whatever. And she took a line. And I'm sitting there, like, upset. Like, man, I was going to get some crack. <laughs> <laughs> then it dawned on me that I'm like, I'm smoking crack. Like, what, what's, where, where, you know, you go to school and you hear about drugs and you're like, you don't want to smoke crack. Become crackhead, and you're like, crack's the worst thing in the world. Dude, I'm smoking crack. The hell is meth gonna do? I need something. So I tell her, like, yeah, all right, let me get one. And I remember, like, she was like, don't, don't, um, don't do it real loud. My sister, her older sister was in the other room, and she's like, she knows what's going on. So don't, I'm like, I've never done this before. So I don't like, oh yeah, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know. So I, I, I got the straw and I tried a little bit like, and it burned insane. Like as soon as it touched my nose, I was like, oh, what the, oh. And she was like, quit messing around. Like, do it, man. Like, shit, like, and I was like, <laughs> took it, burned my, burned my face. Like I wanted to grab my face off. I was like, ah, oh, <laughs> She's like, stop doing that. And I'm like, doing what? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? And she's like, stop doing that. And I'm like, dude, what's going on? Like, and it just, the, the rush of adrenaline. It wasn't a numb. It was like just a rush of excitement. And I was just like, energy, like, whoa. 
And then it all settled. And I sat there, so calm, so quiet. It felt like I was on a roller coaster. I was like, ah, I'm going like a thousand miles an hour. But on the outside, I was sitting there completely calm. And I think analyzing things as an older man, I think that it was my pre, like being opened up to speed or to a veteran through Ritalin. ADHD. ADHD. Did you, when you tried meth for the first time, did that give you the sense of, wow, now I feel I'm normal? Yes. Yeah. I felt good. Yeah. Felt good because I was high. I felt sharp because my mind was working and can focus on things. And it just made me feel normal, but strong, but good normal. Like, I didn't feel so clouded and so many things coming in my mind at one time I could slow everything down and meth hooked itself into me that that night the hooks of meth went so deep into me I could not I didn't do crack no more didn't do nothing but meth I kept drinking kept smoking weed and I would uh smoke uh cracking weed together like I was a drug addict I was doing things but meth was everything to me and it hooked itself so deep into me that I would go to jail and sober up for a few months and as soon as I had the element of being able to get it it was back in my life that fast even when I got older and went to prison as an adult start doing like a year two years it was very i learned going to the county jail as an adult that things are different now as an adult like this fast forward like i got into a lot of trouble and i was like stealing cars and stuff but i went to juvenile hall i went to juvenile camps i did uh, multiple camp terms all of that but when i i got out 17 and turned 18 on the streets, all of my gang member friends and everything, like, I'm mixed. I'm Irish and Mexican. And so I ran with a Mexican gang. But they told me, well, when you go to jail, the whites are going to kill you because you turned their back on the whites, and the Mexicans are going to make you do everything to prove that you're actually with them and not with anybody else. So I went to jail, like, scared. But I understood the element of becoming older and things getting more serious. So I ended up doing longer stints of time, but I could never eliminate the want for meth. So as I got older and went into the county jail as, a, as an adult, I understood now that there's rules. And if you don't follow the rules of the prison gang that I was involved with, you get beat up. And if you mess up again, they'll stab you. And if you keep messing up, they'll kill you. And a big, big, big element of people getting stabbed and people getting hurt and riots starting is over drug use in prison. 
people want to control the drug sales and then other people are drug addicts and they rack up debts that they cannot pay. So they end up getting stabbed, they end up doing this. So it was a very weird element to me that I would go to jail and meth would be there. <laughs> but I wouldn't use meth because I knew the element that it was going to cause me trouble. Right. But getting out of jail, the first thing I did was find meth. And it got me in more trouble and sent me back to prison. Now you ended up spending what, more than half, so at this, your current age right now, did you, is it half your life you ended up spending in jail? Uh, collectively through like going to Utah, going yeah. through yeah. juvenile hall, going through county jail and prison all together is about 10 years. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah. So at what point did, because this, this is a story of escalation, so it escalates, escalates, es yes. escalates, violence, drugs, crime. At what point did you go, okay, shit's got to change. I, I, I know I've got to pull myself out of this because if I don't, you know. So my last prison term, I was doing three years and going eh, a little, little more than halfway, a little more than halfway. I had, let's say I had about, I had a little over a year left. And um, I remember, um, no, actually it was, it was a little less than a year that I had. Uh, so I was like coming to the end of this this prison term, and I was on the phone with my sister, just calling and checking, like, hey, what's going on with everybody and stuff, and my sister had told me that my mom was sick, and it wasn't nothing serious, that she just had mentioned that, like, oh, mom has the flu, and like, you know, she's been sick for the last few days or something, and after I got off the phone, my prison gang ended up getting into a riot with another prison gang. So I ended up going to the hole for about four months, just like almost four months. And in the hole, um, everything is restricted. No longer, you can't use the phone. Uh, you don't get to go to store. You don't go outside. You go outside um, for two hours, like once a week. And that's not even guaranteed. Like a lot of times they were just eliminated or not enough. Um, Everything was restricted. And so like I was in the hole thinking about my mom, thinking about her being sick and compounding things in my head, you know, like, oh, she's sick and things. And I, um, I had this whole idea that like, I can't use the phone and everything, so I was like writing letters to her. And um, I was like, man, I really need some, um, some hygiene products and some some soups and, you know, like some food. I, can't, I couldn't receive a package because of my restriction of being, like, being in the hole. But um, I knew that I could count on my mom. So I had this thought, like, oh, man, when I get out of the hole, I'm going to write a letter to my mom where I'll jump on the phone, call to my mom, tell her I need a package. You know, I need, I need some food and I need some hygiene products, you know? And it dawned on me that I can count on my mom. Like, I always knew that I can count on my mom. Always. She was always there for me. She would put me in jail. When I would get out of jail, if she saw that I was on, high on drugs or had something stolen or something, she would call my PO, call the cops, and be like, you need to come get this dude. 
he's doing wrong. He's breaking the law. So something. And then she would come see me in jail, and she would tell me, like, I love you, and there's something great for you in this life. It's waiting for you. Mm. But you have to work for it. You have to be willing to work for it. I never believed her, but I knew that I could count on her. Even though I continued messing up, messing up, messing up, I would promise her, I'm not going to do drugs anymore. I'm not going to go to my neighborhood. I'm not going to do that. Every time I got out of jail, every time I was getting close to going home, I'm not going to do nothing no more. I'm not going to be a good boy, all this. And the, the second I got into San Pedro, where are the drugs? And so it dawned on me that I was like, I, if I was capable of receiving a package right now, I could send my mom a letter and say, hey, mom, I'm in the hole. I'm in prison of prison. I messed up again, but I need something. She would, she would, she would be there for me. And it dawned on me, I'm like, dude, I ain't never given her anything. All I do is take. I ask for things while I'm in prison. I need some shoes and I need sweats and I need food. And then I'd get out, not give her anything back, not anything that I promised her. And then I'd steal from her. I'd go in her purse, I'd go in my dad's wallet, and I'd take from them. Like if I didn't love them, if I didn't care about them, they, how, how do they know that I love them? My whole life I've been treating them horribly when they've been giving me everything. So this was a very conscious realization. Very, very. I suppose in the whole four months, you had a lot of time to think. A lot of time to think. And once I had that thought, it wouldn't go away anymore. Like it hit me. It hit, like it hit me and split me open. And now I got this wound. And now everything with that little elements of this or that would touch it and it would be so painful. Mm. And that's what I thought about. And I'm like, okay, when I get out of prison this time, I can even give back to my mom. I didn't have the idea that I'm gonna change my life, I'm gonna get off drugs, I'm gonna make something of myself. I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give my mom a gift. She given me everything. And it, I'm probably gonna end up back in prison sometime, but I gotta give something back to her. When I was 14 years old in juvenile hall, I remember being in the hole in there, they call it the box in there, and it's a lot nicer than prison. But I remember being in there after a fight and accepting, this is where you're gonna die. You're gonna die in one of these boxes or you're gonna die on the street, in the curb, in the street. That's your fate. That's what you have chosen and that's what is happening. The escalation that we've been talking about, it dawned on me right there. How things have been escalating to that point and then it's gonna continue to escalate mm. till it takes my life. Yep. So I was like, this is me. And this is what's gonna happen, and I'm gonna be the baddest 
do it until he, till the day it takes me. So that's the way I live my life. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive, but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com so when i was arrested for that third that third term they tried to hit me with the habitual criminal act the element that they can prove that I bring nothing but destruction to society. You're right. So for a crime that would carry three to five, they can give me 10 to 15 because it's the element that hmm. I'm doing nothing for yeah. society. Never in my life had a job. I don't, like, as soon as I step out of jail, I commit crime till I'm back in jail. Been doing this since I was a child. We need to lock this dude up and keep him there. Yeah. That was the element that they were trying to push. So they... Um, they held you for six months? Um, yes. So I did my six months and I got out. When I got out, I told my mom, I'm going to do good. I'm going to, you know. And um, I didn't talk to anybody. For the first week, I didn't leave my house. I stuck right by my mom. And then after that, I started to hang out with little, my cousins and my nephew, my brother, and like started to like venture out a little bit. Um, my mom was on me right from the gate. She can see that there was a little bit of a difference in me mm. because as soon as I got home every time from jail, I would have dinner with my mom and dad. And then after dinner, I would leave the house. And you're gone. And go on. A run. But this time I didn't. For a week I stayed home. And then I was only around family. But my mom was on me tough. She's like, you need to, you need to get a job. You need to go to school. You need to do something. You're not going to sit here and just live life on my dollar for nothing. You need to earn your way around here, you know? So I have never had a job. Never graduated anything. Anything. When I was sent to Utah, I was in the eighth grade. So I didn't graduate junior high. Came back from Utah and then went into high school. And then in high school, I went to jail and never finished that. So I never finished high school. I never didn't graduate anything. So I have no diploma. I have no job skills. I have no nothing. And my mom was like, go fill out job applications. And I was like, um, okay, I don't know how to do that. I don't know where to go. And she was like, go everywhere. So I remember going to like shopping centers and just going from store to store, like Subway and Ross and whatever was there. Like, hi, are you, are you hiring? Can I get a job application? They give me a job application, fill it out, hand it back to some 17-year-old kid that I'm like, dude, I just got out of prison. Like, you know, I've done prison terms. I'm like looking at this kid, like this guy decides my fate. <laughs> like, what the hell is this, you know? And um, 
the looks that I got from people. Like I had just got out of prison. You had all your tats. I have all my tats. Yeah. Head shaved, tattoos on my head, everything. Like, and the thing is, is that it was hard for me to look people in the eye. Like, I never had that before. Like being a gang member, being all that. Like when I was a criminal, when I was on that element, I didn't ever like was skittish from looking at someone in the eye. It was I looked at people in the eye. You know, like when I went to McDonald's, like I walked through McDonald's, like looking at every single person in the eye, like, what do you want? Like, what do you want? What do you look like? You know, like I'm here, and if you got an element against me in some way, we handle it right here, right now. That was just who I was. But now that I'm trying to find a job and I'm in an unknown zone, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to operate. I um I remember. I um, are you are you are you guys hiring? I was scared. I didn't I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to operate. I didn't have that power element. I knew that I couldn't tell this 17 year old kid like, hey, give me a job, dude. I'll slap you. That's not gonna work. So I I I was scared. I didn't know how to operate. And I remember telling my mom this like, I don't know what to do. Like I like, not getting any callbacks. And they look at me like. When I walk up to the counter to ask them about a job, they're looking at me like, whoa, what is this guy coming up to the counter, you know? And my mom was like, I don't care. Go fill out more. Go somewhere else. Go to McDonald's. Go to Subway. Go to Burger King. Go, to, go fill out more applications. So I would do that, and I saw my mom, I saw how happy my mom was. Even though I was getting no call back, even though I was getting like laughed at and things, my mom was so happy. There was a glimmer in her eye that like That's she was awesome. proud of me. Yeah. Even though I didn't have anything, that compound just made it so real to me. So I had pride in making my mom happy. And I'm like, okay, so I walk into this store and then this little young teenage kid is gonna laugh at me or make me feel small. But my mom's gonna be happy. Line them up, let's go. I'm ready to do it. But I still kept getting no callbacks. And that took a toll. It took a toll that I was like, dude, I'm never gonna, like what am I gonna do in life? What am I, if I can't get a job at Subway, how am I gonna have a career 10 years from now? So I didn't really think about it that way. I, didn't, I, th- I thought about, today I made my mom happy and that's what I'm doing. That's it. Day by day, I make my mom happy today. That's it. And I was blessed. I was given an opportunity. My family members, my cousins, decided to uh, convert their house into a venue. So they decorated the backyard and the inside and it's just lavish. And they rented out for weddings and events. And they had this catering company that they would use all the time. And the catering company brought everything, right? A dishwasher, servers, cooks, all that. And my cousins were amazing in the element that they saw me struggling and they, they thought about it. They said, yeah, you want a job? And I said, yeah. 
So they told their catering company that they used all the time, when you guys come, you don't have to use, bring a dishwasher. We have our own dishwasher. And they hired me as a dishwasher. And it was the most perfect job for me because I don't mind working. I love working. Like even when I was in prison and everything, like I want to work, it makes the day go by faster. Like I, I enjoy something. I'm very, very, very hyperactive. So I want to do something. And this element of being the dishwasher kept me in the back. And they had this little curtain that they covered up so that it, it kept everything looking glamorous and stuff. So I was just in this closet, like a little curtain, and I'm scrubbed, and I could just work hard and just stick to myself. And my cousins were like, dude, you're doing great. You, like, you smashed this. And then so they took it upon themselves to give me more opportunity and went to the catering company and said, hey, you see our cousin, he works. You see how hard he works? He works in the back and he doesn't give anybody trouble and he's, he's a hard worker. Give him a chance at more. And they did. And they hired me as a server, which was scary because I had to start interacting with people. But that helped a lot, interacting with people. And my mom, my mom couldn't be happier. I'd come home from work and I'd be so tired. My feet hurt so bad because I'd been standing up for like five hours washing dishes and just running around, you know. It was just, and I would come home and my mom would be like, how's work? And I was like, man, it sucked. My feet are killing me. And she would laugh at me. She'd have this little chuckle. She's like, you deserve it. <laughs> and I hope it's harder tomorrow. <laughs> but I'm so proud of you for doing it. And, I was, and she'd tell me she loved me. And I was like, this is it. Is. This is what everyone talks about, that there's joy in life, that you can enjoy this and you can wake up thinking about the next day to be happy. And so I wanted more. And um, so I worked as hard as I could. And I earned my way up, server, and went to bartending school, became a bar back, became a bartender started doing my own events where I would go to the, the catering business, pick up the van, load the van with decor, with food, with everything, go to the event, decorate the place, serve the food, break it down, everything. And it was just amazing. I, <laughs> I couldn't get enough. I couldn't get enough. Because every time I made the slightest improvement at work or that I had a great work day, work week, my mom was ecstatic. And it was stupid stuff. Like a, a, a catering job. I held down a catering job. And my mom treated it like I was... The president of the United States. Exactly. Mm. And so I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't stop. And I, that's when drove the fact, I never do drugs again. I don't want drugs. I don't want my neighborhood. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to let down my mom again. And that's all that it was. 
it still wasn't a fact in my mind that, hey, look at me. I'm holding a job and I can be a good man. It was like, thank you, mom. You believed in me when I didn't. And the only reason why I'm still doing this is because it makes you so happy. And that was my driving factor. It wasn't like at the end of the week or the two weeks and I get my paycheck and I'm like, hey, I got some money and I'm gonna go party and I'm gonna... My mom was happy. My mom bought me my first car. My dad, like I remember, my dad was, as soon as I got out of jail and I was not doing drugs, my, my dad was like, let's buy him a car. My mom was like, hell no, I'm gonna buy him a car. Is freaking, what is he, how does he earn a car? But then when I got my job and I kept it, and like my mom was, wanted to buy me my car. And she bought me the car and it still wasn't an element of, ah, I got a car. It was my mom's so happy and proud of me right now that she bought me this. Life was awesome, dude. And when did calisthenics, is calisthenics on the horizon here? My, um, my, mom, my mom got sick. Everything was going good. Life was great. And um, my mom got sick. She got cancer. And um, everything, everything changed. I, um, I didn't have a driving factor to work anymore. Like, I just wanted to see my mom and be with my mom. And... Um, it happened quick. It happened quick. She, she got sick, very sick. And um, she passed away. 2012, on, on my birthday. Oh, man. Um, you know, as uh, I think... I believed that she wanted to be with me up until my birthday. She wanted to be with my father because their anniversary was right before my birthday. And they um been, been married 63 years. Wow, that's amazing. 63 years. And, um, sorry, when, um, when she passed, I lost everything. I lost, I had no drive. I didn't want to go to work. I didn't, I didn't want to live. I only wanted to be with her again. I had no drive for anything. I literally, I honestly had no drive to live. It sounds like it was the perfect storm to go back to drugs. Like what kept you away from going back? Not wanting to disappoint her? I didn't want to throw away everything that I had given her, everything that I had done. I knew that it would be the last thing that she wanted. But I honestly didn't care. I didn't care about going back to jail. I didn't care about using drugs or dying. I thought about suicide a lot. And... Um, I was raised Catholic, like I said, I went to a Catholic school. 
And I was raised Catholic, and in our belief, it's um, if you commit suicide, you don't go to heaven. I know that my mom's in heaven. It's my belief that she's in heaven. She was the greatest angel that walked this earth that I, that I ever knew. And the thing that kept me from going to kill myself to be with her is that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be with her. I'd go to the other place, which was a very heavy thought because with the things that I've done and the way I've lived my life up until this point, I might be going there anyway. And for months, for months, I just fell apart. It was about six or seven months that I just stayed in my bedroom. I couldn't leave. I couldn't leave. My girlfriend at the time helped me. She tried to help me. She would come and beg me to get out of bed, try to take me out to go get food, just get, just get me to leave the house and leave the, the cave that I was in. I had the windows blocked out and didn't, I wanted to die. I did. And um, I had this thought about going to the gym. People were telling me, you know, like my family was writing me off. My family swore up and down I was already back on drugs and that I was on my way back to prison. It's just a matter of time. And um, I had this thought about going to the gym. And it was um, the thing that it was about is that uh, I wanted to sleep at night. That was the main driving factor is that if I go to the gym and I exhaust myself, maybe I'll sleep at night. Because I wasn't sleeping and the nights were the worst. Mm. And I did, I did have the thought too that I was like, when I was in prison, I was real stressed and it was mandatory workout for the prison gang that I was a part of. And after that workout, you know, I'd feel better, you know? So maybe it helped me feel a little better, but really I want to sleep at night. I really, really just want to shut off. And um, went to the gym. And I uh, didn't really know too much what I was doing. I know how to lift weights. Didn't really know what a workout routine was and things like that. But I went to the gym, and I went to this gym, Metroflex in Long Beach. Um, one of my, my neighbors by my dad's house had mentioned it to me before. And he's, oh, it's such a hardcore gym and so intense and... Man, you know, and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm not really a gym guy too much, but sounds cool and stuff. So um, I ended up going to the gym, and I um, was there doing some workout, and I had never seen a muscle-up in my life. But a muscle-up, these guys that were towards the back of the gym, there was this bar that they had stretched across the the sliding open, it was a big warehouse yeah. and they had this sliding open door and then the bar stretched across the doorway, you know? And um, I had happened just to uh, 
catch this guy, like, kind of jump up, grab the bar, and then do a muscle up. And I just remember, like, what the f was that? This dude's floating above the bar? Yeah, like, that freaking was, like, superhuman strength, right? Like, I was like, what the, what, like, it was, it was kind of baffling. Because being in prison, I said, like, Adam's apple, right? You pull the bar, your Adam's apple, clear over the bar. And I've been in there with guys that do 40, 50 in a set. Been doing years in prison. They're no strong. And every time I do pull-ups, I pull my chin over the bar, right? So I'm like, I'm strong. Like, I, like you know, I do good pull-ups. But then, like, to pull the bar to the hip, I, it didn't make sense. I was like, what the heck? Like, what? Did I see that right? And then he was like, whoop, whoop. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And he comes down from the bar, and I was like, damn, that was... That dude's fucking freakishly strong. Then, like, in his little group of friends that were working out with him, like, the next guy, like, attacked the bar. He, like, ran at it a little bit. And he jumped up and he grabbed it and he, like, muscled up. And then he did a 360. And he caught the bar again. And I was like, whoa, what the hell was that? Like, I didn't... Like, the first thing that came to my mind was, like, rollerbladers. <laughs> you know? And I was like, dude, this is, like... X Games fitness mashup stuff. I don't know what's going on, but it <laughs> looks pretty cool. Out. Yeah, it looked cool, you know? And uh, I didn't have the thought of gymnastics because yeah. the guys didn't look like gymnastic guys. Yeah. So I was like, dude, that was, that was pretty cool. And um, the guy that, that did the 360, his name's Ace. And... Um, he, he saw me staring at him, you know, like, uh, being a gang member, being a prisoner, being an ex-con and everything, like, I'm not very much of a guy to dive into people's conversations or, you know, you wouldn't see me walking down the street and then be like, hey, those are really nice shoes, man, where'd you get those? Like, that's not me, you know, like, hey, that's pretty cool what you're doing. You want to teach me that, or can I jump in? Like the kids on the beach that come up to you every <laughs> day. You need to show me how to do that? Exactly. <laughs> Play the do, pal. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I was, um, this dude Ace, he saw me staring at him. Like, saw me, like, probably had my mouth open, my jaw on the floor, eyes popping out, like, what the hell's going on? But he saw me, like, intrigued in that. So I was your interest. And he called me over. He was like, hey, like, you want to try it? Like, you, you, can you muscle up? You want to try it? And I was like, dude, I don't even know what the hell you're doing. I don't even know what that is. And he's like, it's muscle up. Like, you, can you do a muscle up? You ever done a muscle up before? He's like, this is when you go on, get on top of the bar. And I was like, no, nah, I've never done that. I don't know how to do it. And he's like, come on, man. Like, come, come on over. Like, try it. You know, like, you jump in, you know? And I was like... Ah, uh, yeah, but then like, then my pride kicked in, my ego, you know, I'm like, I've been to prison, you know, I've done pull-ups for years, like, you know, I'm strong, sets, yeah. I could probably do this. So I, um, I remember having the thought, like, maybe it's like, it's like a wall, like, you know, climbing up, jumping over a wall. I'll run away from the police and jump over walls, like, I got this. <laughs> I can do this. I can do this. I'm built for this shit. <laughs> and I... Grabbed the bar, gave it everything I had, and was humbled real quick. <laughs> Didn't come close. 
I was coming out of, I was super depressed at the moment. Yeah, of course. I was super weak. I was dropped so much weight. I was pale, wasn't going outside, wasn't eating, wasn't sleeping good. So I was super weak. I think I pulled the bar like to my forehead. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, trying to struggle and it just wasn't happening. They showed me some, uh, some things, pushed me all the way up. And I worked out with them for maybe an hour, less than an hour like 30, 40 minutes or something. Then they were like, oh man, we're taking off, dude. Good to see you, you know, nice to meet you and stuff. And like, okay, cool, nice to meet you guys. Yeah, have a great day, you know? They took off. And I was like, man, I wanna, wanna do that some more. Like, I don't know what's going on, you know? Like, you know? So I went started going back to the gym to run into those same guys again. And I ended up seeing them again. And um, worked out with them again. They invited me over, same guy invited me in and said, um, you know, worked out a little bit. And then he said, hey, dude, you know, we uh, go to Venice Beach on Sundays. You should come out. And I was like, Venice Beach? And they're like, yeah, yeah, they got some bars that are right there on the beach. And uh, that's where we work out as a group. A lot of different guys come um, and you should come out. And I was like, I felt, I felt happy. I felt like accepted, yeah, you know, that I was like, wow, these guys want me to work out with them, you know? And I remember telling a friend of mine um, in San Pedro, uh, my buddy Sam, I was like, dude, these guys invited me to Venus Beach and we're gonna like, work out and you should come with me and let's go. And he was like, all right, yeah, yeah, that sounds cool. And I remember getting an ice chest, big ice chest with wheels and like getting a whole case of waters and ice. And I was like, I'm gonna bring waters for the, everybody that's gonna be there. And um, I was letting my hair like grow out a little bit so I can like cover the tattoos on my head. And I was like, I, I really wanna be accepted by this group, you know? And they're all real ripped and strong and positive and smiley and bubbly and f happy when they're working out and joking and giving each other shit. And being, it's just so much positivity energy, you know? And, and I was, I was ashamed of my past. Like I was, um, I remember wanting to work out with them and wanting to be accepted into the group and being ashamed of my past and being, if they find out, they're probably not gonna want me around, you know? And um, it was never that. I remember going to the beach that day. They told me, yeah, we get there about noon. Get there about noon, you know, so just, you know, come on. I'm like, okay, cool. I wanted to make sure I was there on time. So I got there about, you know, 10.45, 11. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, had my case of waters and noon came and went. One came and went. Two came and went. And my buddy was like, dude, we just get out of here, dude. These guys aren't gonna come. And um, I remember feeling let down, like, man, dude, dang it. And uh, then it was about 3, 3.30. These guys just showed up. Big group of guys just showed, hey, what's up, man? You're here, super cool to see you, man. And I was like, you know, I was like itching for the second that they would arrive. You know, they just like kind of strolled onto the beach like, hey, dude, we'll see you. Hey, good to see you, man. Cool. Then like, you know, talk to everyone else and stuff. And we had an amazing day. 
like the beach is infectious. It has a positivity. It has this group of guys was pure positivity. And I had an amazing day. And I just remember it coming to an end. Everyone, like, the sun was going down, and everyone was like, oh, man, all right, I'm going to take off, and I'm going to take off. And the group just started windling down. And, and I remember, like, having the thought, darn, man, like, it's over, you know? Like, I got to go back to my depressing room. And I was like, I'm going to do this tomorrow <laughs> because I feel so good today. And I'm going to do this tomorrow. And that's where it started. That I was like, I'm going to do this every day. And then I had the thought that my mom sent them to me. Because she looked out for me. Mm. My entire life. She'd put me in jail. She'd put me in pain. If I needed it, if it called for it. But then she would build me back up. And she would tell me, you know, that there was something, there's something great for you in this life if you're willing to work for it. She used to tell me that all the time. I know that there's not, not, not just like you can be good. You can, you can change this around. You can stop doing drugs, Chris. She told me, there's something amazing in life waiting for you if you're willing to work for it. And... I felt happy doing this. And I was like, She's, here she is, looking out for me again. Saw me falling apart and was like, go for it. There's something that's going to help you. Here's something that will take the pain away for a second. And so I just wanted to do it every day because I wanted to feel good. I didn't want to think about killing myself anymore. So that's what I did. Every day. All day. <laughs> Broke myself. <laughs> All day long. And I remember it took me about two weeks, a little over two weeks to get my, my first muscle up. Oh, fuck you, man. <laughs> <laughs> took me three months. <laughs> I wasn't training all day, yeah. I, um... But at the same time, I had the foundation of prison, yeah. you know, doing body weight movements for years in prison. And um, I got my muscle up. And as soon as I got my muscle up, I was like, I'm going to do that 360 thing. I've been seeing guys do it here at the beach while we've been working out. And that thing that just captured my attention right there, you know. And I was here at Venice Beach. And I did a muscle up, chucked the 360. And I'm not sure what happened, but I know that I landed on my head. I remember, <laughs> I remember that the sand and everything was in my face. And all the group was like, whoa, dude. You can't just willy-nilly throw yourself. You got to, you know, whoa, dude, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Like, nothing. They're like, dude, you need to slow, slow it down a little bit. And I was like, all right. So I did it again, right, like, two minutes later. <laughs> and I got this, um, everybody was like, dude, you're crazy. And it's awesome. <laughs> and I was like, what? Like, I got so many things of, like, you're crazy when I was a kid. 
It's because I was too crazy with Negative. my energy. Negative. Yeah. And now all of a sudden it was new. Yeah, it was like, you're, you're crazy. And it's awesome. And I was like, okay. And they're like, how are you not so, how are you not scared? And I was like, I don't know. I'm not scared. You know, this is fun. This is not scary. This is fun. And, you know, thinking about it more and more as time went on, I was like, dude, I was thinking about killing myself. Mm. I wanted to die. I wanted to be with my mom. And this 360 thing is scary? Why? Because you're going to twist your ankle? You're going to break your arm? For the last six months, I've been contemplating if I should end my life. These elements of hurting myself were not scary. They made me feel alive. They made me feel maybe, maybe there was a purpose that I'm still alive. Didn't know what that was. I don't know if there is, but just maybe it's that I need to do this 360. And it felt so, so good that it was just addicting. You found a new drug. I found a new drug. The drug, a drug that was going to better my life. Mm. So I just, did, I did this every day. I worked out every day. And after a few weeks, a month of working out, feeling good, dude. Talking to people. I started going back to work. Because, because I worked for a catering company, during that, those months after my mom passed, I stopped working. Because you get booked for this wedding or you get booked for this event, you know, they have these. And I would, they would call me and say, hey, there's a wedding here or there's a, a, a car event or something with near catering. And no, 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 I don't, I'm, no, no, no. I, would, I just wouldn't answer. I wouldn't call back. I wouldn't say I'm busy. I wasn't working because I just... I didn't want to, I wanted to die. I, wanted, I didn't want to see anybody, interact with anybody. So after finding Cali and I started working out, I started feeling better. Started going back to work. Not all the time, because I wanted to go to the beach. Had to, had to try. <laughs> yeah. And um, things started getting better and I started getting better. And I started getting good. And people, my, my workout group that were teaching me was like, dude, how are you getting so good? How are you picking these things up? And I started throwing myself in different elements. I learned my backflip. So then I backflipped off the pull-up bar. And everyone was like, what the hell are you doing? Like, how, when did you learn your flip? And I was like, last week. And they're like, when did you flip off the bar? And I was like, today. <laughs> and they were like, that's crazy. And I was like, dude, this is awesome. <laughs> And I just, I, I wanted more and I wanted more and I wanted more. It couldn't, no matter how much I worked out, how much I did, how much I got, I wanted more. And I remember Battle of the Bars. I remember being introduced to Battle of the Bars because I was introduced to Kenneth Galarzo, the, the vice president of the WCO. And being in prison, I understood, I, you learn, you learn hierarchy. Right, you can understand when a, when a person has an element of authority. Authority, you just know that. You see who runs, who listens to who, who does what. And I remember when he walked onto the beach the first time that I met him. 
I saw the group and how they hung on his every, every word. And I'm like, this is the guy. This is the guy I need to listen to. This is the guy I need to surround myself with. This is who I need to learn from. And that's exactly what he did. He saw something in me. And he, he was like, I want to work out with you. I want to show you some things. I wanted this. And he pushed me. And he showed me. And then he's the one that told me, oh, yeah, we got this Battle of the Bars event. And I was like, what? Competitions and stuff? That's awesome. He's like, yeah, yeah, man, we're going to have this competition in San Jose. You should come. And I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm going to go. This is going to be amazing. And he's like, it's going to be these dates. And I had already was booked in for an event with my catering company for those dates. So I try to get out of it. I look for someone to cover my shift. I ask my boss, like, can you find somebody? Can I, can, can I back out? Like, I, I, I need to go somewhere. I couldn't, get, I couldn't get the time off. Nobody was available to shift change. I just couldn't get the time off. And I missed the event. And I had never been to a battle of bars. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what I missed. But I missed something. Mm. <clears throat> and I didn't want to miss it. And it hurt. It bugged me. It bothered me very much that I wasn't there. I wanted to see it happen. I wanted to see this thing that helped me feel better in life. I want to see it go down. I want to see it under the lights. I want to see it sparkle. And I couldn't be there. And it, it drove me crazy. So you missed the event? So I missed the event. And so I quit my job. And I Have just never trained. Missed an event since? Haven't missed an event since. <laughs> I've not missed an event since. And um, I didn't know what I was going to do. Didn't have an idea of training or, or, or finding a new job or where I was going to make my money. So, um, but I was just training. That's all that was happening. It was like, I'm going to train every day because this is what makes me feel good. So that's what happened. And some more time went by and then the next event was coming up. Next Battle of the Bars. And this time, I'm going. And Ken wanted me to be there. He's like, you got to go. And I'm like, oh, I'm going, dude. Believe me, I'll be there. He's like, perfect, because you're competing. And I was like, no, wait. Whoa, I'm going to go to the event. I just want to see it. And he's like, no, 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 you're competing in it. And I was like, no, dude, I can't do that. Like, I've only been training probably for like seven months, eight months or something, dude. Like, these guys, you know, and I can't do it. And he was like, you're doing it. I signed you up. You're in it. And that's it. And I was like, no, dude, no. And he was like, dude, you got to do me a favor, bro. Like, we need athletes. We need to fill the slots. And I think that you're going to do great. So you're going to do it. Okay? Okay. Done. And I was like, oh, man. But I went in into it. And I won it. And when that, that day that I won that event, my grandma was there. She's not really my grandma. She's my sister-in-law's mother. Mm -hmm. But she grew up with my mom, and they were best friends since childhood. She knows my mom so well, right? She was there. And I was standing there with my trophy, and she came up to me. She put her hand on my face. 
She said your mom would be so proud of you. That's it. This is my life. Done. Period. I don't know how I'll make money. I don't know what's going to happen. But I feel so proud of myself right now in this moment holding this trophy. And I just got the validation that I needed. Like your mom would be so proud of you. And my mom introduced me to this. She's the one that sent me to the gym and sent those people to introduce me to this sport. And this is the thing, like I looked around, it was in the LA Convention Center and it was, people were going nuts. There was hundreds and hundreds of people there screaming, ah. This is the thing that my mom's been telling me for years. There's an amazing thing in life for you if you're willing to work for it. This is it. I've never looked back. That competition solidified that this is my life. That competition led me to a competition in Florida, which led me to a competition in Russia. The World Championship of Calisthenics. 65 countries. I've never been outside the country. I had to apply for my passport to get to apply for the visa. I remember being in Russia, being so scared to go into the competition. And I had this thought like, I'm not even allowed to vote in my country because of my past. But now I'm in Russia right now and I'm representing my country in a world championship with 65 other countries. And I bring the USA to the table. This is my life. And I had an element that I wasn't supposed to be there that, you know, but maybe I got in over my head. That competition changed me. As much as I thought that the first trophy changed my mindset, the world championship changed me. When I won second place out of 65 countries, I know that this is for me. This is what I was made for. And it's because of my mom that I'm here. And I need to prove to her that she was right. And thank her for everything that she did throughout my life sticking by me. This is what it's for. This is where I'm going. Now, I'm three-time middleweight world champion. I've traveled, I've lived in Dubai. I got that championship under my belt in Russia. I have another championship under my belt from Kazakhstan. I have then been 
introduced to the idea that there's a reason why I have been able to change. And so um, my manager is the one that opened the idea of me writing a book. And not just to write a book, because when, when the first idea, they're like, you should write a book. Like, your story is pretty interesting. You should write a book. And I was like, I have dyslexia. I hate school. I hate reading. I hate writing. No. And he's like, it's not the element of writing a book to tell your story of, like, look how cool I am. It's the element of writing a book to say, if I can overcome, you can overcome. And that changed everything for me. I sat with that idea and I thought about how my mom helped me be here today. How I should be dead for multiple reasons in different ways. But I'm still here because my mom kept me on that track and always reminded me that there was something great in this world waiting for me if I was willing to work for it. And in the beginning when I first started calisthenics and I was winning, yeah, that's what I thought it was about. I get to be cool and win these championships and travel and work out and do cool tricks. My mom was right. There was something great waiting for me. That was what she was talking about. I was born into a situation that I didn't ask for. I was given cards that I really wish were different. But I made it through because of the help from my mom. And I watched her be who she was, helping everyone that she could around her. And I struggled and I hurt and I pain. But now I'm here today, still breathing. Not only still breathing and surviving, but thriving. Surviving, right? Yeah. And if I can come back from that mindset when I was 14 years old that I'm gonna die in this box, I deserve to die in this box. What am I, what, who am I, what do I do? I steal from everybody, I steal from my, the very, my very own mother that loves me so much that I steal from her over and over and over again. And she's still there. I'm not supposed to be alive, I'm not supposed to be here, I'm not a, a person of value. But if I can still be here and not only be alive and survive, but thriving, then anybody, anybody can change. Chris, your story is amazing. It's of epic proportions and I'm, I can't wait until, like as I'm listening to you speak, I'm like, there's such a movie here. There's such a movie here and I can't wait uh, until the book becomes a movie. Uh, and I said before, I wish we had three hours to do this podcast because I think we could, we could probably do four if we're honest. <laughs> But, um, mate, I just want to thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. This has been an, an epic, epic. You know, it's so interesting because, you know, I, the thing that sticks in my mind right now is you were told, you know, you, you shouldn't be telling stories. You can't tell stories. You can't tell, you shouldn't be telling stories like that. And now here you are sitting here today, you know, sharing a story of epic 
portions. It contains every emotion, you know, you could think of. Um, and it's been an incredible ride. But for those people who want to know more, your book, Beyond the Bars? Beyond the Bars, From can, Prison to the Podium. Where can people find that? It's available on Amazon. Yeah. It's um, Kindle. Yeah. Barnes and Nobles. Audiobook coming soon? Coming soon. Yeah. It's, um, I was really thinking about pumping it out like it was going to be a quicker process. Yeah. But I'm working on it right now. I'm reading it myself. Yeah. And it's uh, very much a lot more work than I thought, <laughs> than I anticipated. Yeah. Yeah. I knew, I, I came into writing the book yeah. understanding this is going to be a task. Yeah. And then once it was done, and then the idea of like, oh, we got to uh, produce the audio book. I was like, all right, cool. You know, sit down. The mic, read the book. So much more. So much more. <laughs> Where can people find you, mate? Instagram? Instagram, all social media platforms. Yeah. Tatted Strength. Tatted Strength. Yes. Chris, thank you so much for coming down. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to be here. Awesome stuff. Thank you. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know that your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, KerwinRay.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.